0: when I was in school um, a long time ago uh, sometimes uh, the teacher would be reading something to us these were the old days when this is what would happen Maybe she'd be reading a book and uh, especially in the afternoon uh, some of us found it difficult to keep awake and uh, she knew that she probably could see it see the difficulty that we are having and she would often say Martin what was the last word I said? And Martin would frequently not know the last word that she said because he wasn't listening. There's two ways you can do that. You can do that to check out whether somebody's listening, or you can do it because something that you've said is vitally, vitally important. Now, when we read that passage earlier on, Anyone who can just read this and just move on, there's something wrong. And I'm sure that you noticed that. But perhaps I should talk particularly to those of you who are more familiar with the Bible. You probably read that passage. It's one of the favorite passages in the Bible. It's one of the the most well-known miracles of Jesus. And if you can just read that and just move on, then there's something wrong, isn't there? This is a spectacular miracle. I'm not saying that other miracles weren't. In fact, the very nature of a miracle, when you think about what is a miracle? A miracle is when something happens that defies the norms of nature. Like when Jesus walked on the water. That's a miracle. It's not, it's not just something strange, it's not just something unusual. That is a defiance of the norms of nature. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. It just doesn't happen that's what a miracle is it's when jesus was able to do something that nobody else could do like take 5 loaves and and 2 fishes and make them and multiply them to make them feed a multitude of 5000 people you just can't do that it's spectacular now this one is spectacular for two reasons first of all because of the audience the audience was a wider audience When jesus walked in the water it was only his disciples that saw it when he changed the water into wine at the wedding it was only the disciples and those who were at the wedding that 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 got what was happening so it was a very limited audience this one is in front of the entire religious community everybody's watching they're all a bunch of skeptics they don't like Jesus anyway apart from Mary and Martha and the family that was visiting the rest of them have only just come to mourn with this family because it's the right thing to do but secretly they they, they didn't really like Jesus at all and they stand there and Jesus is he says to them he, he shows them something that they have never seen before But the second reason that this is so important is because it has a bearing on all of us. It answers probably the most fundamental question that anybody could ask, which is this. Is it possible to return from the dead? Now, that's not just something that is a philosophical question. We could sit around a table because it affects all of us. It's probably something that you've asked, you may not have asked, your family members, or what? But you've asked yourself, you've wondered about it, because all of us know we're going to die. Many of us, most of us in here, have lost a loved one. We know the horror and the finality of death when someone's taken from us. We've watched, we've attended their funeral, and we've watched as that coffin is lowered into the to, to, to the grave or or a crematorium or whatever. We've watched and and we all know the horror and the utter helplessness that you feel at a time like that. And there's always that thought that comes to you and say, I wonder when my time will come. Now here is Jesus and his friend Lazarus dies. Now Jesus is some distance away and for some reason he delays his arrival when he gets word that his friend is sick. He could have come right away, and he could have stopped him from dying. But it was clearly not the plan that he had. Jesus waited for him to die. In fact, he waited four days after he had died. So clearly, the delay was deliberate. So eventually he comes, much to the consternation of the two sisters, who cannot figure out why he has delayed. And so he he arrives, and naturally Martha says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother hadn't died. And then he says something which is quite earth-shattering. He says this, your brother will rise again. Martha says, well, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection. No, said Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me, will never die. Now, have you ever thought about these? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Because because these words undergird, they're foundational in what we believe in the Christian faith. But they also answer the question that I asked previously. Is it possible to come back from the dead? And here is a man who proves it. Not just in what he says, but in what he does. See, when you think about what he said there, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead yet. I mean, these words are insane. They are quite, frankly, insane. Unless they're true. And if they're true, then they are the most spectacular words that you'll ever hear. And that's what the Christian faith is all about. And that's why Jesus could not just stop at these words alone. He couldn't just make the promise. He had to go go on because, because anybody could have said, well, that's just crazy. You just don't say things like that. But then he went on and he proved it. He went to the grave of Lazarus' friend and he said, roll away the stone. And understandably, Lazarus' family said to him, well, you've got to be kidding. Our brother has been dead for four days. You don't do this. But they did. And the next thing he said was even more outrageous. He spoke to The dead man—you just don't do that. Whoever you speak to, you've got to presuppose that the person has the ability to listen. Listen, which means that they are alive. You don't speak to someone who is dead. This was brought home to me quite recently. I I lost my mother about, I guess, about nine months ago. She was ninety-seven. She was ready to die. She had lived and served the Lord for many years. So we miss her terribly, and and yet there's a joy. In, in knowing that she her time had come and that the Lord had taken her away and now she's she's with the Lord. But as her son, I had the unenviable task of trying to sort of sort out some of her affairs, which meant paying bills and trying to find out what she what she owed or who owed her whatever, council tax and phone and all the rest of it. And it's a faff. But you still you have to do it. So I was it was the phone the phone bill I had to stop the the phone in the house. So I phoned up the phone company and I said to them, I said, my mother's passed away. Now, they were really nice about it. They were really nice about it. They said, we're really sorry to hear that. But they got it wrong, so I phoned them again. I called them again. I said, I need to tell you this again. My mother's passed away. And they were nice again and all the rest of it. And then and, 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 and a week later, I got a letter from them. Dear Mrs. Martin, we are sorry to see you go. <laughs> Now I can I can smile about it now, but I wasn't very happy when I saw that. I thought I've told these people umpteen. I've told them several times, and they've got okay. Some computer. I'm not going to. I'm not going to badmouth the phone company. But but what I'm trying to say is this: you don't talk to a dead person. It's crazy. It's meaningless, and yet that's exactly what Jesus did here. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reinforce how utterly spectacular and how earth-shattering this chapter is. And it's one that affects all of us. It's the reason why I'm a Christian today. It's not just because I happen to have been brought up in a Christian home. I know dozens of people who were brought up in Christian homes and they don't believe in Jesus they've gone a different way they've taken a different path the reason I'm a Christian is because of this because here is the one person in the world who has claimed to have the key over life and death and guess what he went ahead and he proved it he went ahead and he said Lazarus come out and you know what there is Lazarus and he is standing there. He's alive. He's living. He's wrapped up in whatever cloths they used to use to, to, to bury people. And he's, he needs all this stuff needs to come off and he needs to get help for that. But he's alive. He's well. That is the reason why I'm a Christian today. Not simply because of Lazarus, because Jesus went on to prove it, not only here, but he also went on to prove it in himself. When he himself was taken, he was arrested, he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. He's alive. And nobody else can give me that. No other religion, no other system, no other philosophy. Nothing else can give me that promise. That absolute assurance, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, he or she who believes in me, though he were dead, yet we will live. In other words, I'm going to raise the dead. And the proof is right here. Because if Jesus, if this Jesus has that power and he has that authority to do it for Lazarus and himself, then he has that authority to do it for me and for you. And he promises to do so one day. Absolute certain and it's proven. Now here's the thing. You would imagine, wouldn't you, that from that moment, from everybody looks at Lazarus there, look in disbelief. And yet it's there, right in front of their, their noses. Now, here's where it becomes a tipping point. Because verse 45 Many of the Jews think, those who, the, the, this is now the people who had witnessed all of this. Right? What's going to happen to them? How are they going to react to what they've just seen? And it looks like there's a two-way reaction. It's either one or the other. Verse 45 says, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. Not surprising. That's what you would expect. After seeing such an incredible thing happening but here's the thing others verse 46 but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done now this is the religious community of the time these are the the high if you like these are the this is the, 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 the ruling council what they call the Sanhedrin these were the religious people and the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting so here's what's happening they're all standing there, they're watching this extraordinary miracle taking place. And, and, and some of them, they're watching some of their contemporaries believing in Jesus and the rest of them decide to go in a different direction and they call a meeting to discuss. Right. What is there to discuss? What they've seen has happened. They knew that Lazarus was dead. I mean, if there had been any dubiety, if he had only had died maybe half an hour previously, then there may have been questions asked about, well, was he really dead? He was four days since he was buried. There was no question whatsoever. So what is there to discuss? Well, if you read on, you'll find out. Are they discussing when they're going to submit to Jesus and worship him and follow him for the rest of their lives, which is what you would expect? These are Jews, remember. These people all believe that a Messiah is coming. They believe that God is their God. They reach back in their ancestry to Abraham, their father. The Old Testament belongs to them. The law, the prophets all belong to them. So they're waiting for Messiah to come. What further proof do they need? that this man really is the Son of God. And yet, it becomes an occasion for a discussion. And the discussion, it turns out, is not about whether Jesus is Messiah. The discussion is a political one. Let me read it for you. "'What are we accomplishing?' they asked. "'Here is this man performing many miraculous signs,' If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see the arrogance of this crowd? The arrogance is is quite breathtaking because they're saying, here, here, here we've seen Jesus raising a man from the dead to life again. And they are now sitting in judgment on Jesus. They think they have the authority... To somehow decide Jesus' fate if they had used their brains properly they would have said well if this man can actually reverse death he can say the word and we're all finished and yet look at what they say if we let him go on like this <laughs> I just find this so incredible and it's one more reminder of me that that, that that that's the reaction that you find so often amongst people that it's not because it's not that people take their Bibles and they look at it rationally and they say, well, okay, I'm, go- I'm going to, going to really try and understand this. You never get that far with people. There's an irrationality about the way that people react when they come face to face with Jesus. And if you're looking for proof of that, just just read these words. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they are more concerned about their politics, their political identity, and what the Romans might do than the most important question within their culture, which is, when is Messiah coming? When is the Son of God going to come? When is the promise going to be fulfilled? And they're basically saying, we're discounting Jesus, even although the proof is right in front of us, we're discounting him because we're too scared that the Romans are going to take away. I mean, who cares about the Romans? When you're face to face with the Son of God, if you put your trust in the Son of God, then it doesn't matter who your enemies are. God is greater than all of these. That's the way they should have been thinking. Instead of that, the whole thing thing was tipped on his head. And they're left worried, concerned about their politics rather than... And just in case there's an awkwardness about this, I hope there is. Because... The Bible has a bearing on us today. This chapter is not just about what happened then. It's about whether or not you and I have come to believe and trust in the same Jesus Christ who has proven who he is by raising this man from the dead. And so this chapter speaks to us all. God speaks to all of us. This morning, and asks us, well, which side would we be on? This was a tipping point. Some believed in Jesus, they began to follow him. Others decided to act quite irrationally. Instead of even asking the questions, they decided that they hated him and they were going to get rid of him altogether. That's what his death was all about. His death was, from one point of view, the hatred of his enemies. And yet, from God's point of view, it was our salvation. Now, here's what Caiaphas says. With this, I'm going to <coughs> just going to close just another five minutes or so. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up. He's a bit rude. He say, here's what he says to them. He doesn't. He's not exactly showing a lot of respect for his for his uh, his, his contemporaries. You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, here's what's happening. Two things are happening. First of all, there's what Caiaphas is doing. He's doing something that we would call a risk assessment Right. He's listened to everything that's going on. He's listened to what Jesus done, and he's listened to all the arguments, the politics, and all the rest of it. And he stands up and he says, "You guys know nothing at all. Here's my risk assessment. You, you know what a risk assessment is. Most of us do this, especially in the professions. It, it's not something that we used to have when I was younger, but it's, it's, it's really important when we have. A, we, we all have. To, what, what happens is that when you're going to do something then you have to sit down, first of all, and you have to calculate the probability of what might happen. Like, for example, if I was going to do a risk assessment, me coming to Dunfermline today, I would have sat down this morning and I would have read a piece of paper and said, right, what is the probability of something happening? And so you'd say, well, can a car crash maybe uh, or maybe hit a flood, or if it was last week, I would have had to take the storm into consideration. And then at the end of the day, you calculate you know, whether you should go or not. Now, of course, the probability is small, so, so you go. You're prepared to take the risk, okay? because the risk is small. Now, here's Caiaphas' risk assessment. He's saying, we're in danger of our place, which, by which he meant the temple, which is the most precious building to them, and our nation being taken away by the Romans, So he says, in my calculation, it's better that this one man, Jesus, gets put to death. And that way, we'll all be safe. Our nation will be the same. We'll we'll carry on as before, and so on and so forth. That's his risk assessment. Basically, it was a condemnation towards Jesus. I want him to put to death. The other thing that is happening is that God... Is speaking. In the very words of Caiaphas, God is announcing the greatest news in the world. Let me read Caiaphas's words again. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then John realizes what's going on. He says he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God. In other words, Caiaphas is bang on. He's actually saying something that God wants him to say and wants us to hear. It's better for one man to die and for us all to perish. But what God meant was very different from what Caiaphas meant. What God meant was what was going to happen on the cross. And to find that out, you have to read the rest of the New Testament, and particularly the places in the New Testament where where Jesus' death is explained for us. Let me take one of these explanations just to finish off and to lead us into the communion part of our service. Where Paul says in Corinthians, he says, He "He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he's talking about the cross. He's talking about what happened when Jesus hung on the cross. He's saying that at that moment, God took all of our shame our awfulness our guilt and he made Jesus guilty of it he took it from us and he placed it on Jesus and Jesus at that moment became a sacrifice in which he took our punishment the punishment that we deserved for our sin and as a result of that death Jesus perfect goodness becomes ours the best news in all the world it's why we can come here to this morning and rejoice it's why we can come here and give thanks to God it's why our coming here today we're not saying to everybody when, when you take that little piece of bread later on you're not saying to everybody I'm better than everybody else no it's the opposite you're saying I'm as bad as anybody in the world but my badness has been taken away by the death of Jesus. He's paid the price for my sin and his righteousness is now mine. Isn't that the most glorious thing that you're going to hear today? I can't think of better news to join together around and to tell and to share with a broken and a dark world. A world that needs Jesus more than anything else.